chapter 8. We are going to try to get back on course with our study of the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ in a chronological fashion. And we are going back to Matthew chapter 8. We, the last time I was with you, we were talking about verses 5 through 13. This morning I would like for us to pick up in verse 14 and read through verse 17 of Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 14 through 17. We read these words, And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lie and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. And when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Let us sort of try to get back up to speed this morning. Let me sort of remind you of where we are. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have what we call the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus lays forth, as it were, the new law. He's the new Moses on the scene, laying down, uh, describing his kingdom that is about to be established, those who will make up this kingdom. In the Beatitudes, their description is given, the new law that is to govern this kingdom. And as he concludes, the people are utterly astounded because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes, as I've explained, would teach by quoting some of the old rabbis. They say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said this. And then along comes Jesus and says, Ye have heard that it hath been said of old, but I say unto you. In other words, Jesus didn't quote anybody. Uh, he speaks as one having authority. Now, as I've pointed out, anybody can come along. There's plenty of folks out there today who uh, will gladly take an authoritative stance and be glad to tell you what to do when it comes to religion. The question is, is he who he says he is? He takes this authoritative stance. Can he back it up? And in chapter 8, Matthew begins to show us work after work after work, miraculous doing after miraculous doing, whereby God authenticates the testimony of his Son. The teaching of Christ is here being confirmed, ratified, authenticated by the deeds that he is now performing, one miraculous deeds after another. Now, as we pointed out, there are several things that fall out of these miracles, things that we can deduce. The first thing is, is that Christ's miracles cannot be explained simply as a psychological phenomena. This is not, as we sometimes hear, the placebo effect. You know, you give somebody a pill and tell them they're going to feel better if they take the pill, and they take the pill, and sure enough, they feel better. You know, their headache goes away, let's say. But may I point out that the miracles that have been explained and expounded to us in this chapter are not the kinds of things a placebo is going to help. A man consumed with leprosy is healed instantly at the touch of Christ. The case of the centurion servant, the servant's not even around. How can you say this is some sort of psychological manipulation? He's not even in the same town when Jesus pronounces him healed. He's healed. He doesn't even know how it's happened. 
So the first thing you have to rule out is that these miracles are simply what we might call psychosis or, you know, some sort of psychological manipulation by Christ. The second thing that we would point out is that Jesus is not a first century flim-flam man. You know, the guy who has come to town to fleece all the people, to enrich himself, to fill his own pockets. For we notice something very quickly is that what Jesus does is in no way benefiting himself. It is purely for the sake of others. And then the third thing we notice is that Jesus is not some first century magician, some first century David Copperfield, you know, putting on a magic show gaining attention in most of the cases, as in the case of the cleansing of the leper, he tells the leper to tell no man but to go to Jerusalem and offer there the offering that the law declares. This is not someone tooting his own horn, trying to draw a crowd by his miraculous doings. No, we see in the case of Jesus, there's something about the character of these miracles, something that Peter sort of catches the essence of later. I want you to hold your finger here. Turn to Acts, the 10th chapter. I want you to notice how Peter, in the household of Cornelius the centurion, which is the first time the gospel goes to the Gentiles, I want you to notice how Peter characterizes the ministry of Christ. Acts 10, in verse 37. He's talking about the word of the gospel going out here. In Acts 10.37, Peter says, That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. I just want you to notice that Peter says Jesus went about doing good. And I think that is a wonderful condensation and characterization of the earthly ministry of our Lord. He went about doing good. Now what do we mean by that? What is good? We use the word in a lot of different ways. You think about it. We may mean that which is agreeable to our senses. We're going to eat some good food in a little while. It's good. What do we mean by that? It's good to my taste. It brings me pleasure. It's pleasant. It satisfies me. We use the word good in that sense. Or sometimes when we use the word good, we use it in a moral sense. We say this is a good man as opposed to an evil man. Uh, We go off and leave our kids at home. We tell them, be good. We're talking about their behavior. So we may use the word good in that sense. Or we down here in the South, we use the word good to mean excessive or a lot, abundance. Like we had a good rain the other day. We don't necessarily mean it was beneficial. We just mean we had a lot of rain. So like a a good case of the chicken pox. You got a good case there. Doesn't mean chicken pox is good. We just got a big case. You know, we use it in that sense. Well, what do we mean when we say that he went about doing good? One of the hermeneutical principles somebody pointed out to me years and years ago was the principle of first mention 
in Scripture. That is, oftentimes, if you want to understand the concept behind a particular word or thing, go to the first place in Scripture that concept or word is mentioned, and there oftentimes you'll get a handle on how it's to be understood throughout the rest of Scripture. Well, I thought about that in reference to this term, good, that Jesus went about doing good. Where is the first time that you run into the word good in Scripture? Well, if you think about it, you run into the word good right off the bat, don't you? Back in Genesis chapter 1, you remember God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good. In fact, at the end of every day, he saw the works of his hands, might be the vegetable life, might be animal life, he said it was good. What do we mean? The light was good. Was it morally good? Well, no. I mean, light and animals and vegetable life aren't morally good in the sense they're morally evil. doesn't seem that it's good in that sense. Well, what do you mean when he said the light? He saw the light and it was good. Well, if it's not in the moral sense, does he mean that it's good in the sense that it was pleasant or it was beautiful? Goodly. Well, it might have been, but I don't think you would have necessarily been characterizing it like that. Well, what was going on when God looks at the works of creation each day and pronounces them good? Is it not this, that basically what God is saying is that the thing created is now fulfilling its purpose the reason that he created, he saw the light. He wanted to separate light from darkness. He said, let there be light. And he looked at the light and said, that's good. That fulfills my intended purpose. In fact, after the six days of creation, after man's creation, you may remember that a little, little change here, a little variation on the theme, God looked at the whole created order and he said it was very good. In fact, it was so good that the next day he didn't do anything. Uh, the scripture says he rested on the seventh day. Well, he get just all tore, you know, he's just plumb tired out. Put in a hard week and just tuckered out. No, omnipotence does not get tired through ex- the expenditure of energy. Uh, he's not quitting, he's not ceasing from his works because he was tired needed rest up. Why did he rest? It's basically because he's through. He's finished. It's like a painter that's painting a picture. I don't know anything about that. Madison, Vicky, y'all know about this. You, 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 you paint the picture and finally, I mean, I would never know when to stop. I just keep thinking, the more I put on there, the better it'll get. But there comes a point that one more dash and dabble of paint's gonna ruin it. it you're gonna mess it up. It's finished. I don't know how to tell that, but an artist can look at it and say, that's finished. A songwriter knows when it's time to quit. It's through. It's complete. It's what I intended. And so it is that God looked at the created order and pronounced it good, very good, in the sense that it was exactly what he intended to create. It was exactly fulfilling its function. And I suggest to you this morning that we look at the word good from that perspective. There's a lot of different ways you can look at this word. 
But that which is good in the eyes of God is that which is fulfilling its created and intended purpose. Of course, you know that the created order didn't stay that way. The entrance of sin coming into the world changed all that. A curse was placed upon man, upon this earth, because of sin. And no longer does God look down from heaven on this earth and say, it's good. In fact, in Psalm 14, Paul quotes it in Romans 3. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any, any who are fulfilling their intended purpose. And what is his diagnosis? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good, no, not one. There's not a one of them that are fulfilling their created and intended purpose. What man was designed to be, there's not a one of them that is good. That's his verdict. The earth that he had beheld and said it's good, now has a curse placed upon it, and it groans and it travails under that curse, says Paul in Romans 8, waiting for the day when that curse will be lifted. Now, something happened to this good, good place. Sin entered. And where sin enters, its fruits, its byproducts enter. Sickness Sorrow, death, its wage, follows quickly behind. Now, you may be saying, Brother Mark, what in the world does this have to do with Peter's mother-in-law? You know, that's what we read this morning. Let's go back to Matthew 8 here for a moment. Now that we've taken this little excursion back to Genesis to sort of get the concept in our mind, what, what do we mean that Jesus went around doing good? I want to just give you an instance this morning. It's a very simple thing. You look at this and you say, well, that's nice. That's that's neat. Jesus went into Peter's house and we learn by this that Peter was married, had a mother-in-law, and she's sick, has a fever. Now, the idea is that uh, maybe she's not all that sick. We don't have the degree of her sickness spelled out to us, whether this is something life-threatening or not. But we simply have the account of Jesus laying his hand, touching her hand, and the fever leaving her. And she arose and ministered unto them. What I want to try to suggest this morning is we have a picture here of Christ, the Son of God, the Son of a good God, coming into a world that is no longer good. And this good Savior, the good Messiah, begins to go about doing good. Now, now, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say he went about doing good? You see, good to you and good to me may be two different things. What's good for you? I remember a story about a school teacher asking for prayer uh, in her Sunday school class. Said, uh, you know, I'm, I've got a prayer request. And they said, what is it? It says, well, school starts next week. And one of the parents lifted her hand and said, I've got to pray. He said, what is it? 
See, school starts next week. You see, what's good for me and what's good for you may be two different things. What, what do we mean by he went around doing good? May I suggest to you that one of the ways we can look at it is like this. That Jesus went around putting things back like they're supposed to be. He went around undoing the effects of the fall. What's broken, he fixes. What's lost, he reclaims. What's ruined, he's re- he restores. What's contaminated with uncleanness, he cleanses. What's sick, he heals. What's bound, he looses. What's possessed, he frees. What's dead, he raises to life. Is that not in essence the character, the nature of his earthly ministry? Just as God declared good what fulfills his intended design, what he meant for it to be, what he purposed for something to be, so now Christ comes into the picture doing good. Takes that which is broken and restores it so that it can fulfill its purpose. Let's see that here in the case of Peter's mother-in-law. Here she's sick. You ever been sick, you know, to where you just thought you were going to die? We get these little 24-hour bugs, don't we? In that, you know, here we are, proud, self-sufficient people that we think we are, and some little microscopic virus that we can't even see without the aid of a microscope puts us on our bed, makes us a deathly... That is sort of humiliating, isn't it? That something that you can't even see can lay you so low. And you, you know, you think you're so strong and so capable and so able, and it doesn't take much to put us out of commission. Here's this fever. It's got Peter's mother-in-law out of commission. She's out to lunch, as it were. She is unable to, uh, we say, operate. And Christ comes along and touches her, and immediately the woman is restored to health, and through Christ she is put back in operation. Notice that she gets up, she arises, and ministers unto them. Now, I suppose the cynics among us, or, you know, some of us men, go say, well, I guess so, you know, of course he healed her, who was going to cook supper if she didn't heal her? It's sort of like we sometimes went on our backpacking trips out in Wyoming. We always took uh, the women along, and they said, why do you take the women along? I said, well, who's going to cook if we don't have the women along, you know? Well, some of the cynical of us might take that point of view, but I don't think that's what's going on here. We were designed to serve. We're created to minister. That's our purpose. That's what God put us here for. And here this woman is incapacitated, out to lunch, out of commission. And Christ restores her so that she is able to function. Now, very simple. I'm not up to very deep stuff today, folks, so you have to bear with me. This is about as simple as it gets. We teach our children, when they sit down to the table to give thanks, many of us began our instruction of our children by teaching them to say a little prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Very simple. I want you to notice that in these miracles, as Matthew relates them to us, that we are seeing the first part of that prayer expressed very clearly. God is great. God has sent his Son into this world. And oh my, look at the power that is manifested through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
His power, as we have seen, is absolutely unlimited by the degree of the disease that he confronts. Here's this leper, utterly consumed with leprosy, one of the most horrid diseases imaginable, and he's healed in an instant. Our Lord's power is not diminished by the distance between him and the intended recipient of the miracle. We have the occasion of this centurion servant healed in another town. He doesn't have to be there. We've seen that his his miraculous deeds are not dependent on the means that he uses. When he heals the blind, sometimes he speaks. Sometimes he spits in their eyes. Sometimes he spits on the ground and makes spittle of, and clay of the spittle and puts it on their eyes. And they go wash and see. You understand what we're saying? That his, his miraculous doings is not dependent on the means. And his miracles also are not limited by the demerit of the intended recipient. It's not just good folks that he does things for. Worthy folks. You remember that's what the Jews came to Jesus saying about this centurion. Why, he's worthy. He's built us a synagogue. You, you ought to do this for him. The centurion sent his servant said, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. You should set foot under my roof. So we see the unlimited greatness of the power of God expressed through His Son, Jesus Christ. And on and on we go. We can just look at all the miracles that flow out of His earthly ministry up to and including the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But may I point out that if that's all you see here, you're missing half of what you want to get. And in fact, you may be missing the most important half. Because what is being expressed here is not just that Christ has a lot of power. I mean, there are men on earth who have a lot of power, and they're nothing but tyrants. We have that old saying, you know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And oh, how that is true. Put this kind of power in the hands of any other man, and you've got a tyrant on your hands. But... Do you not see the second part of that child's prayer here? God is not only great, God is good. The Son of God comes into this world with the express purpose of revealing to you and I the character of our God. Is that not true? Is that not His purpose? If you want to know what God is like, you look in the face of Jesus Christ. There's the clearest expression of the character of the invisible God. He's the visible image of the invisible God, says Paul. You want to see what God's like? Look at Jesus. And here comes the Son of God into this world with all kinds of power. That's what we would expect. Someone who was the Son of God, revealing God, to reveal a great God to us. But if that's all you see, you're missing half of it. His works also reveal to us that our God is good. He came into this world. He went about, said Peter, doing good. Fixing what was broken. Restoring that which was ruined. Now, this consideration, I I know that uh, if you are like other people, I expect you are, that at least before your conversion, that your thoughts about God were what the Bible calls hard thoughts. You know, God's out to get me. 
Uh, your only desire was that God leave you alone. He's, he's going to mess me up. He's going to mess up my plans if he gets a hold of me. He's going to mess up my life. I've, I'm having a lot of fun. I mean, how many young people I hear this from, you know, I'm having a lot of fun right now, and, and you know, I don't want to come to God now. Maybe later on when I'm getting over having all this fun, because you know God's going to ruin all my fun. We feel like coming to God's like going to the sheriff. It's going to take away our freedom, take away all our stuff. And we're going to be left with nothing. I mean, that's what happens to folks that come to God. Because you see, God, as the parables so often put it, as those wicked men in the parables thought of God, he, He's one, He's a hard man. He gathers where He hadn't strawed, where He hadn't sown. In fact, the book of Jude ends with this, um, look, look at it, go to the book of Jude. little book right before Revelation, just one chapter long. But I want to note, note here how Jude, Jude describes wicked men. Jude, verse 14. Jude 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. Now, that's, you see the word ungodly pointing up three times there. They are ungodly. They have done ungodly deeds and they've committed them in an ungodly manner. And then notice the last part. And of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The attitude of lost man towards God is that God is my enemy. God is out to get me. God is out to take away my freedom and my fun and my stuff. He's going to rob me of life. And what the gospel unfolds before our eyes in the ministry of Jesus Christ who came to declare the person and character of God is that God is not your enemy. He's the only hope you've got. He's your dearest friend. That every good thing you've got in life is His gift. Even though you've misused it, even though you've claimed it to be your own possession, even though you've taken His things and treated them as if you had earned them and had the right to them, and that God had no right at all to tell you what to do, even though He is your Creator who brought you into this world, put breath in your nostrils, puts food in your belly. Oh, those hard speeches. And Christ comes to declare that God is not that way at all. That all the goodness, all the good things, everything in this life that you call good is a gift from His hands. We have a phrase, you know, about the dog that bites the hand, that feeds it. In essence, the sinner is biting the very hand that's been feeding him. Because we're walking on his earth. We're eating his cows. We're drinking his water. We're breathing his air. 
Paul, in the book of Romans, says that the goodness of God is designed to lead us to repentance. Repentance meaning at its essence, root meaning of the word, change your mind. You ladies know about that. That's your prerogative, I'm told. You uh, change your mind. You know what that means. You intended to do this. You thought you were going to do that. But you change your mind. The sinner, when he comes to repent, changes his mind. All his life, he thought God was out to get him. God was out to destroy him. God was was out to strip him of everything that he thought made life wonderful. And now he learns that no, all this time, God was good. God was offering him life. God was trying to free him, as it were, instead of bind him. Loose him instead of lock him up. Give him life rather than take life. He has a change of heart, a change of mind. And Paul says in Romans 2, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repent. You remember the old prodigal son? He had a change of mind, didn't he? Where's life? Well, when he was there on the, on the farm with his dad, life was in that faraway country. After he's been down there slopping the hogs for a little while, so hungry, wanting to eat with the pigs, and the pigs are worth more than he is, they won't even let him eat pig's food. Where's life? Life's back home. You see, he had to change mind. Completely different view, picture of the world and of the universe. May I say that that is the purpose, or one of the purposes at least, of these accounts of the miracle and the miraculous doings of our Lord. As they are to show us that not only is God great, but God is good. Now that's very simple. Now how does he show us, or how does he do this good? Look look at this verse back in Matthew 8, verse 17. This is a verse that has long perplexed biblical scholars. Matthew 8, this is. Now that's a quote right out of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. Now Isaiah 53, verse 4 seems to speak of Christ being our substitute, the one who is going to bear the transgressions of his people, the one who will justify many because he's going to bear their judgment. The question is, Matthew here seems to be quoting this passage and applying it to sickness, for instance. And the Pentecostals claim, for instance, that healing was included in the work of Christ on the cross. That he not only died for our sins, he died for our sicknesses. I, I learned all this on Channel 30, you understand, on Trinity Broadcast Network, you know, learn all this stuff. But, uh, but basically this is the concept, that Christ not only died for our sins, he died for our sicknesses, and so if you're sick, you really don't need to be sick any more than you need to be a sinner. You, you can be forgiven of your sin, you can be healed of your sickness, it's all in the cross of Christ. Well, may I point out that that's hardly what Matthew is saying here. Matthew is not saying anything about the death of Christ at all. In fact, he says this is fulfilled in the healing ministry of our Lord. Notice the fact is, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled. He's not talking about the cross. The cross is nowhere in view here. But he's talking about the healing ministry of our Lord being that which by which he bears, our, takes our infirmities and bears our sicknesses. But there is an element of truth in what they're saying. 
in that, let, let's look at it with sin. Let's look at it that way. There are times that our Lord will declare a man forgiven of his sins. Is that not true? There was a man brought to him on his bed. Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. How can Christ forgive a man sin? Well, you say, well, he's speaking for God here. Well, that's certainly true. But as we learn from Sunday school, there's only one way God can forgive sin. The only way he can forgive my sin is if somebody else pays for it. Here, Christ is not dealing with sin directly, but he's dealing with the byproducts of sin. Sorrow, sickness, death. This is what came along. This is the baggage that sin brought into this world. And just as Christ has power to declare a man forgiven of his sins by one reason, that he's going to go to a cross. I mean, I think about that time that woman was caught in the act of adultery, dragged before Jesus. They were wanted him to declare, you know, you, you want us to stone her? That's what Moses would have said. And what did Jesus say? He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. You know the story, how they all walked off. But there was one there without sin among them. There was one qualified to throw the first stone. And that was Jesus. Why didn't Jesus pick up the rock and stone her? Why did he say, go in peace, I don't condemn you? And I suggest to you there's only one way he can say that. Is that he's going to go to a cross and he's going to die for that sin. Any sin that he forgives, he must forgive on that basis. May I also suggest that any sickness and any disease that he heals must be healed on this basis. That he is going to take upon himself the very curse that caused the disease in the first place. That's where the disease comes from. From that curse that was placed on creation. And in order to remove it, he must bear that curse. I think it perhaps is a little simpler if we simply look at this as a preview of coming attractions. Is there not coming a day when all effects of sin and the effects of the fall are going to be removed? When we read the description of heaven over in Revelation 20, 21, do we not read that there there will be no more sorrow? God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. No more death. All right. Well, well, those were the things that the fall brought. Those were the things that the curse brought with it. How, how is it that there's going to be a time when these things are going to be removed? In fact, in the last chapter of Revelation, as this description of the water of life coming out of the throne of God, the trees growing on both sides of the river for the healing of the nations, there's this little added phrase, and there was no more curse. You see, that's what makes heaven, heaven. We, we get a little taste of heaven right now. The believer, the first fruits. we get the earnest. We get a little taste of what it's like. But folks, I still get sick, and I expect you still do too. 
I have sorrows, I have tears, I suspect you do too. But the promise is that there is coming a day when all the effects of sin, all the effects of the curse shall be removed. How is it that in heaven there will be no curse? May I suggest to you that it's because one came into this world and went to a cross and bore that curse. And that his healing ministry that takes place here in the pages of Matthew is simply a foretaste, a preview, if you will, of that day ahead when there'll be none of these things. No leprosy, no fever, no sickness. It's a preview of the fact that through him, the curse that falls on creation will be lifted and removed ultimately. Now, I hope this morning that these thoughts might first of all bring you to faith. If you're an unbeliever, if you're outside of Christ, that the realization of what Jesus came into this world to do would be a strong incentive for you to seek Him. For my friend, there's only one who's going to do your soul any good. He went around doing good. There's only one place that you're going to find someone who will do you good. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. He's not out to get you. He didn't come that you'd be destroyed. That's what the enemy does. He says, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, without repentance, without this change of mind, I well understand where you are today. Uh, you're, you're looking at this much like I, I look out here on this crowd and I can see in many of your faces the fact that there was a time uh, when you thought to be here on Sunday morning is the biggest drag, the biggest waste of time, the biggest bunch of nonsense that you could possibly be involved in. In fact, the last place on earth that you would willingly be on a Sunday morning is right here. Right? Was it that long ago? You, you do remember that, don't you? And this morning, nobody, the police didn't come get you. I didn't call you up and put you on a guilt trip. Nobody twisted your arm. You, you came freely. You, you just showed up. Some of you came a long way to be here this morning. But how did that happen? Well, I'd say you changed your mind. Big time. In fact, you had your mind changed might be a better way of putting it. God, as we say, overhauled you. Did a work of grace in your heart. And the things that you once detested and despised, now you desire. You desire to hear more and more and more of the saving work of Jesus Christ. That the thing that rings your bell and floats your boat and pulls your string is to hear of the wonderful doings of Jesus Christ your Lord. Is that not the case? Am I exaggerating? Am I making this up? Or is this the reality of what Christianity is all about? That we're not here under duress. We're not here to do something distasteful. We've got to show up and put in our time on Sunday morning before we feel good and go out about the rest of the week. But we're here to rejoice in the good things that our Savior has done. Oh, if you're outside of Christ this morning, I trust you'd give this serious thought.
But that's the whole purpose of displaying these miracles before you. Now, if you are in Christ, I hope this would build you up in the faith. May I say that uh, you think about the Christian life, and as we well know, it's not a bed of roses. The road is often difficult, even though, as I've expressed, we have a wonderful life in Christ. Our circumstances in this world, Barry was telling us this morning about one of the means that God uses for our sanctification, and that's suffering, and it's kissing cousin tribulation, uh, things that we just soon avoid, but those things come into our life. But notice, all things work together. If you're in Christ this morning, what's the verse? All things work together for good. Isn't that a wonderful promise that all of this that happens... These calamities, these disasters in your life, your times on the hospital bed, your, your time you spend at funerals, that it's all happening for your good. Good is being ministered to you. And then may I point out that you and I are to emulate Christ. We're to follow Christ. He is to be our example. And He went about doing good, didn't He? What do you suppose he intends for us to do? Is this brain surgery here? Is this rocket science? If he went around doing good and we're supposed to follow his example, what are we supposed to be doing? Does not the Scripture say, do good to all men, especially those who are the household of faith? Over in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this giving to God the sacrifice of our lips, the fruit of the calves of our lips, our praise, our worship, and we're all here doing that today. But then it goes on in the next verse, and don't forget to do good. Over in the book of Titus, Paul will say, it's not by your works of righteousness that you're saved. It's by God's mercy. He washed us with the washing of regeneration. He did it all, not by your works. And then he says, Titus, remind them this, tell it over and over again, so that they'll be careful to maintain good works. Tell them that they're not saved by good works, so they'll do good works. That's strange, isn't that a paradox? Because you see, unless you tell them they're not saved by doing good works, they'll do good works to get saved. And that motive makes it not a good work. It makes it a selfish work, a self-centered work, a God-manipulating work. But it's only when we learn that we're saved by grace that we can do good works. Oh, I've got a whole list of them here this morning. I could quote to you from one end of the New Testament to the other of how it is expected that the New Testament believer follow in the steps of the Master, going about doing good. Now, you and I, I, I don't claim and don't have the gift of laying my hands on someone who has fever and that fever departing. But I can give a cold cup of water. Isn't it interesting that up until this century, when the government supposedly took over the process, that it was the Christian church that was behind all the hospitals. You know, why do we have a Baptist hospital and Methodist hospital? What were you suppose those names came from? Why, why, you know, the Baptists today and the Methodists have hardly anything to do with those hospitals. But why, you know, in their beginning, why, why was it that it was the church 
that was involved. In, in England, over in uh, Bedford, England, where, where Bunyan ministered, walking down the street, we look across the street at a building over there, had a plaque on the side. It says this was one of Spurgeon's homes. Throughout the land of England, Charles Spurgeon managed to uh, establish what he called the Spurgeon houses, which were for orphans and indigents. Now, there was no one in England that ever preached the grace of God in salvation better than Charles Spurgeon. And yet, at the same time, there was a burning desire to do good. So this morning, if you get nothing else out of this, I hope you understand that. That we have a warrant, we have a commission to follow in the steps of our Master who went about doing good. May we go... And do likewise. May we follow in his steps. And not because we think that by doing good we're earning brownie points, going to be able to buy our way to heaven, buy us a ticket. No. We do it because we've fallen in love with he who did us good. We've fallen in love with the idea of grace. We've fallen in love with the idea of mercy. And it's grabbed us, it's got us, and it won't let us go. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to comprehend the wonderful goodness of our God. And may we see it, Father, in the life, in the ministry of your Son who came to open our eyes to who you were and what you were like. And that, Father, we knew that you would do right. We knew that you would be just. But, oh, Father, what wonderful news that you came to do us good. And Father, even the angels announcing the birth of our Savior declares that you have a good will towards men. That you desire to do men good. That you desire to have them come and turn from sin and trust in your Son and find life. You desire to have them live and not perish. Father, thank you for that revelation from the very heart of our God as our as your Son revealed you to us, that we might know that though this world stands under your wrath and under your condemnation, though your eyes do not see it as good, yet, Father, you have a good purpose in Jesus, your Son. May we understand that you've come to love us. You desire that we turn and not perish. And may we seek a Savior. May we come to turn from self, turn from sin, and lay hold of life that's in Him. Father, if there's any outside of Christ here today, grant them repentance unto life. Give them a change of mind. Wash their hearts. Turn them that they might be turned and might come to Christ. Deal with hearts, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.